If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio. Dr. Piers Robinson is a political scientist, currently a co-director of the Organization for Propaganda Studies, editor of Propaganda in Focus. He serves on the board of directors of the International Center for 9-11 Justice. You probably recognize his name. Uh, Dr. Robinson has been on RCR twice. Uh, first in August, we were talking about uh, the techniques, the propaganda techniques, and um, after that in uh, late September, uh, and we were talking about 9-11 and the propaganda and, and everything that went around that. And now Piers Robinson is back with us. Dr. Robinson, nice to have you back on RCR. Thanks for coming on. Uh, it's good to be with you, Paul. Okay, so 9-11, I think what we're going to do is is see, um, and that was fascinating, by the way, that chat, uh, um, 9-11, and the replay is still up for folks if you want to listen to it, and uh, 20th of September is the date. Okay, so 9-11 leading to where we are now with Israel-Gaza war. First of all, you must have been fascinated with the, what would we call it? Well, it's propaganda, but it's kind of atrocity porn, really, isn't it? Almost next level that came out from October 7th all the way through to now, because first it was um, the atrocity stuff from Israel. Now it's horrible images from Gaza. So so what do you make of that so far in a propaganda sense? Well, the, the first um, uh, caveat I, I always put in on these conversations, I have not had time to take a close look at October 7 um, and what happened. Now, we did have the, the inaugural um, annual David Ray Griffin lecture um, broadcast from the International Center for 9-11 Studies, and uh, Daniela Ganser did talk about some of the questions which are now emerging in terms of how October 7 was propagandized. And I'm fully aware that there are some big questions now about the claims which were being made from the Israeli government around the time and about knowledge, foreknowledge, and so on and so forth. Um, I'm always very careful. I, I only talk about areas which I've researched quite closely. So what I would say is that the one thing we know from war and, proper, and wartime situations is that they are filled with propaganda. And that's the first starting um, sort of position anyone should have looking at these issues is to understand it's a war situation and both sides are going to be propagandizing as much as they possibly can in order to shore up whatever military action is going on. So for sure, um, there's going to be propaganda involved in this. It's going to take some forensic analysis to work out exactly what was going on on uh, October 7th, the question of foreknowledge and so on. Um, obviously, since then, I mean, we're now into a situation where well over 10,000 people have been killed because of the Israeli action in Gaza. Um, and continuing on, although I understand the Americans have cautioned Israel not to expel the entire population um, from Gaza, I commit essentially a form of genocide. Um, so we're seeing how that plays out. But I, I think people need to start with that, that recognition that both sides are going to be propagandizing. But also Israel is very well versed in the techniques of propaganda, manipulation, persuasion. And so all of that needs to be kept in mind. And of course, there is this broadest geostrategic goal, which clearly Netanyahu and the Israeli government have been pushing. At, and it looked initially as though they were going for a full-blown removal of the Palestinians from Gaza. That might still happen. Um, and that's a strategic objective on the part of um, the Israeli government in this situation. So what we see in the media needs to be interpreted through that lens, as opposed to, for example, you know, a narrowly focused um, response to uh, what Hamas uh, did on October the 7th and so on. It's much broader than that, what's being done. And the political incentives are, are much wider in relation to the current operations. Yeah, the um, the the images that because uh, I I, I kind of described it as propaganda porn, and and I think that's a reasonable description because they from the Israeli side started immediately, and you could hear people quoting the descriptions of some of that material in the way they described 
the you know the the shock horror evil of the Hamas attack instantaneously you're hearing lines like beheaded babies over and over again you know families uh, are massacred in safe rooms you know and of course the imagery of those young people running uh, from that music festival that all cast people in a particular way of thinking almost in the first few hours it was very powerful yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, a, a, another point I could have mentioned is that, you know, for those who study wartime propaganda, atrocity propaganda is nothing new. We see it in the First World War. We see it with you know, the allegations of Germans crucifying soldiers, etc. Um, we see it, you know, of course, Gulf War One, the infamous testimony from the young girl to the U.S. Congress about the incubators being switched off That's by right, Iraqi right. troops, yep. which is untrue. Um, we've seen it in my own area of core research, looking at the chemical weapons allegations in Syria and this constant drive to um, point the finger at the Syrian government in order to present this as uh, the source of all evil in the conflict and us as being on the side of right. So trying to present ourselves as the force, the force for good, the enemy is the force of evil, and atrocity propaganda feeds straight into that. And obviously, as you know, on the Syria issue, I mean, we know that these uh, are manipulated staged events in many instances, if not all instances, and that's ongoing work on, on that area. So yes, atrocity propaganda is, is a part and parcel of wartime situations, and, and I think we've seen a, a very large dose of it uh, in, in this case. And the Israelis were the first to... To, to distribute it, and I guess chronologically that kind of makes sense. But, you know, is it unreasonable to wonder if you if you wanted that sort of material out there, you had to allow the conditions from which uh, those images could be drawn from or the perception that those images are drawn from, and, you know, that, that it may not be all that we think we're looking at. Yeah, see, well, well, you're trying to draw me into into a kind of detailed position on. No, I'm, on I'm, I'm being happened, sort of careful, is, and I don't want to go too hard. But no, you know, I mean, really, this is what Daniela Ganser in the inaugural David Ray Griffin lecture, which people can watch on the IC911 website, also a UK column. He, he went into some of the questions here, and there was, of course, I believe, a New York Times article in the last few days, which referred to foreknowledge on the part of the Israeli government and um, the late. Um, Graham McQueen describes in the film um, Peace War on 9-11, you know, he talks about managed war triggers where, you know, you, you, you let it happen. And this is one of the things that Daniela spoke about was Pearl Harbor, as his opinion as a historian is, is that the US government knew that Pearl Harbor was going to happen, but they let it happen because they needed it as this act of injustice against the US to then mobilize wider support. Uh, for U.S. entry into the Second World War. And, of course, that's the story with 9-11 itself, um, the topic of today's conversation. So if we were going to join, if we're going to start at 9-11, and, and we're going to say that led the West to where we all find ourselves, I guess, uh, today in terms of this Israel-Gaza conflict, and, of course, that atrocity porn came from the other side too. Let's acknowledge that as well. Kids out sure. of all those shocking images as well. And there's a mismatch on the numbers, which has people pretty angry as well. But so there, there's a definite link, is there, from that to now? Yes, for sure. Look, the, it's, it's very difficult as, as, as gentlemen such as you and I, as we grow older, <laughs> We forget about the younger generation coming up behind us, but yeah. we've lived through events. Of course, people such as myself have, have studied events, 1990s through to the global war on terror. And, and what is very clear, you can start to see the patterns emerging. Now, in terms of drawing this link between 9-11 and where we are today, I mean, first of all, the, the evidence that 9-11 was, was a manufactured war trigger is overwhelming now, right. both the scientific evidence on the building collapses, the paper trail, the involvement of Saudi Arabia, for example, and that came out earlier this year, the connection between CIA, the CIA and two of the hijackers. Um, all of this points very strongly towards a manufactured war trigger with involvement from actors, certainly within the U.S. political structure, in order to enable that to happen. And, 
of course, 9-11 was a, it was a triggering event. It was an event which kicked off the global war on terror. And, and it doesn't take an awful lot of searching through the, the historical records to see that um, the neocons in America, the Project for a New American Century, were talking about the need to aggressively shore up U.S. hegemony into the 21st century before China became too powerful, before other players came onto the international scene. And these war plans, I mean, I, I sort of, these were confirmed in my mind when the Chilcot reports in the UK, the investigation into UK's involvement in the Iraq invasion in 2003, released the documents, the conversations between George Bush and Tony Blair weeks after 9-11, where they're talking about regime change. And I think there's one email from Tony Blair to George Bush, where he says, well, look, if, if, if the top priority is toppling Saddam Hussein in Iraq, then we're better doing that with Iran and Syria acquiescing rather than hitting all three at once. But, uh, I was listening right. to Colonel Wilkerson um, uh, the other day in an interview um, uh, with Glenn Deason, and he was talking very, very clearly about pre-9-11 okay, in the months running up to 9-11 before he was removed from the Pentagon. Um, he was uh, briefed as to the regime change wars, which were fully planned. Iran, Iraq, Syria, other countries in there as well. So what you start to see there, you, you have an instigating event, which is essentially a manufactured war trigger, and that's used to start wars, Afghanistan, Iraq. And then segueing with, with a certain period of time into what we see in Libya and Syria, these are both regime change wars as well. And of course, the war in Syria is a very long ongoing regime change yeah. war. Yeah. Unlike Afghanistan and Iraq, which were very overt in terms of deployment of US force, Syria, for example, has been very much about funding proxy groups within the country. Uh, CIA Operation Timber Sycamore with Saudi Arabia, one of the, I think the largest CIA covert operations funding extremist groups within Syria to overthrow the Syrian government. So what you see here is the playing out of the, the global strategy of projection of power through military means, getting rid of regimes who regimes in inverted commas who aren't on in, in your uh, pocket yeah. or on your side. And these conflicts have, have continued. And, and of course, it's, it's segued into the Ukraine as well. So this kind of drive, this permanent war machine, underpinned by this drive to shore up American power going into the 21st century, led into the Ukraine conflict. And now in the Middle East, we're seeing it's almost on this sort of critical point now where does Israel push through to try and shore up more territory, gain more territory? As the U.S. loses its influence rapidly in the region, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing, you know, Syria is coming back into the Arab League. We're seeing um, Syria, as we're seeing Iran and Saudi Arabia talking to each other. And, of course, we're seeing BRICS, China, and so on. All of these kind of tectonic shifts in the geopolitical structure occurring. And all the while, um, you know, the Western war machine, or the, the empire, as you want to call it that, is, is continuing with these very belligerent strategies. Um, and so I think that's how we need to understand what we're seeing today. This is right. the outgrowth of events which of course they predate 9-11 because western imperialism and involvement in conflicts goes throughout i mean i mean we can go back several hundred years if we want but going through the 20th century vietnam etc you know this is all this kind of the military underbelly of the western empire liberals don't like to talk about this in fact they erase it from their minds yeah that the west is involved in these conflicts but it's a fact it's true and actually as daniela's daniela gantz's lecture yesterday showed that this is a consistent pattern of, of american belligerence it's ruthless in its projection of power and so that's how I think we need to yes understand where we are today. This is a continuation of, of the war machine, albeit, and perhaps we'll come to this, coming up against some pretty hard stops, some harsh realities now in the international system. A couple of questions to ask you on that. Um, so the, the you know using nine eleven as a kind of war on ramp was that for any you know purpose based in any sort of morality, or is that just the business model? keeps cycling and you've got to find ways of yeah moving to the next conflict but you've got to have some kind of 
plausible explanation for doing it. Is it that cynical or is there like, you know, yes, some philosophical I, moral reason for it as well? Look, I mean, th this is Machiavellian politics. Okay. This mm. is, um, for example, let's just run through the thought process. This is a group of pretty hardline American imperialists, neocons, but also people in, in the, the neoliberal establishment as well are, are underpinning this. Um, their belief is that as the US goes into the 21st century, it's going to be facing the emergence of China, the weakening economic power, potentially, relatively speaking, weakening military power. And the kind of Machiavellian response to that is, well, we need to use our military capability as hard as possible in order to try and shore up our interests before the next big empire, possibly because maybe some of their thinking was that we can actually, can we maintain US dominance throughout the 21st century, you know, the notion of full spectrum dominance, etc. You could see that in the discourse as well. Or if not that, at least to try and get as much as you can before the next powers come along. And so if, if your mindset is that you know, you're an empire and you need to try to do everything you can, but what you don't have is the domestic support, but also in a sense, the international support to engage in that kind of military action. You know, there's a kind of notion that liberal states aren't supposed to pursue aggressive wars. This is this kind of normative kind of self-perception. So you've got to deal with that. But you also have these fundamentals, and this gets to what you're saying, these fundamentals, you have to mobilize people. You have to mobilize a population to support, to join up, to join the military, and to support military action in Afghanistan and Iraq. And sometimes people say, well, did they really have to do nightly? It's such a, a terrible crime to carry out a false flag in order to start these wars going, well, look at the scale of these conflicts. Look at the scale of the regime change wars. This wasn't just one war that was being entertained and planned for. It was multiple wars. And so when you have that kind of grandiose geostrategic vision, then you need a grandiose event in order to mobilize. You need a big marketing plan as well. So you you need, need yeah a big marketing plan, and and that and it's a terrible truth, and it's yeah. a very very dark truth. But that is the reality that we're in, and and it has taken us down the road we are to a proxy war against Russia. That's a nuclear power in the Middle East. If things continue to worsen, say if there's an attack on Iran, for example, which is conceivable, possibly maybe not so likely now, but it's certainly conceivable. It was certainly in the crosshairs of the neocons. Iran was the end goal with the regime change wars. But, but they never if got that to happens, it. They never got to it. Well, they're still trying. This is the thing, is that those forces are still pushing for action on Iran. Now, if we get to that, China and Russia will not stand to one side. And I imagine a lot of the global community will not support American action in that context. So, you know, this is, you know, this is the drive to carry through these conflicts and, and you need, you need to, in the most fundamental way, and there is a big recruitment problem in the US military now, you need the soldiers, you need the men and the women to join up to fight. And that's what 9-11 did. It made everyone terrified of Islamic fundamentalist terrorism, and it made people angry enough um, and mobilize enough to actually support their governments in all the wars that we've seen. You, you've just reminded me, Piers, I was in um, um, the the US uh, all the year after 9-11, 2002, and uh, in Virginia, and um, uh, where NASA has it, Langley, Langley, Virginia. Langley, and yeah. uh, me and a friend there were on a job, media job there, but uh, um, we would just come out of the supermarket and two US Marine recruiters approached us in this incredibly, you know, dapper uniform, dress uniform. And they were going around the car park and every male within a particular age, and we were probably just a little bit too old for that in our early 40s at that time or late 30s, but they were doing serious recruiting in the car park, like serious, you know, it was that they were seeking people out and going and having one-on-ones with them. That was going on just after 9-11. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is this is how it's good not to overcomplicate these things. Um, you know, 
it's you need to mobilize people. You need to be people to be angry enough, and you need to carry out these dark deeds in order to pursue what you perceive to be the necessary um, policies to support the power of, of your country or the power of your empire. And so, these dark deeds, you know, from this Machiavellian point of view, are part and parcel of foreign policy and sacrificing lives in order to achieve that is an acceptable thing to do. Well, they don't seem, have... It doesn't seem to bother them too much, does it? Um... Well, I, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it seems that these people and say people like Cheney, for example, these are very, very hard nosed individuals, um, very ideological and, you know, I mean, sacrificing, you know, people say, why why would they allow American citizens to die in 9-11? Well, when you launch a war as a leader, you know full well that you'll be sending a large number of your young men and women to death and so on. These are the kind of the brute, cold, hard calculations that you see being made. I, I always, you know, people should go back and look at, is it The Fog of War, the uh, documentary on Robert McNamara, U.S. Defense Secretary in Vietnam. And he's talking about his role in the planning. He was, he was one of the U.S. planners in the strategic bombing of Japan during the Second World War. And he's he's talking about how they were calculating. Well, we knew that we needed this much, these many bombs and incendiaries to get the city you know, destroyed, etc. Fully aware of the civilian deaths. That yeah, all burning to death. Yeah, yeah. Just, absolute sort of cold, hard, rational calculations. And that's what we've got. That's the problem that we've got, say, for Western publics and and, and our democracies, is is that we are, as it were, led by power blocks who are capable of such actions. Yet yet the war fighting doesn't seem to be um, um, going too well because, um, you know, if you look at Ukraine, okay, it's a proxy war. But they're exhausted. It, everything you hear about that, they're exhausted. Uh, the West, uh, things have shifted to uh, another sort of point of view with the Middle East. Um, they've, I don't know how many lives have been chewed up in the meat grinder there. That nation's going to be incredibly angry very soon. You just know it. Um, I think Colonel Douglas McGregor, who quite a few of our listeners are, uh, know who who he is and listen to his stuff, you know, he he basically says we we can't kind of fight wars anymore. We can sort of have them sort of bump along, and and it's like clubbing baby seals, but that's about it. So, um, what's happened? Because the competency of the war fighting machine that used to be so awesome, you know, shock and awe, and no one would ever have a hope against, seems to have, um, and you're talking about recruitment, seems to have sort of um, um, wasted away. They're just not as good as they used to be. So, And, and, and they're not winning. Yeah, they're not winning. Well, well, of course. I mean, and and this, of course, was what presumably was going through the minds of the the neocons in the nineties. Is that America is moving into the twenty first century, and you know, China is going to dominate economically, um, militarily. You know, Russia, Soviet Union, Warsaw Pact forces, outdated and antiquated, but in time they will modernize. And, you know, as, as any sort of realist theorist will tell you from international relations scholarship, you know, the international system, you, you have powers rising up, declining. This is part of um, the reality of this the world. This is the empire, decline and of so empire kind of thing. It is, yeah. it is the, the decline of empire. And, the, you know, they have rolled the dice on the military strategy. Let's see what we can do to shore ourselves up. They have rolled those dice now. And as you said very, very accurately, I think, they're coming up against, and as I referred to earlier, this hard stop. They're not winning anymore. In in the Ukraine, the, the only conceivable way of removing Russia from those territories would be to mobilize a very significant number of women, men and women from Europe and America to go in and fight for that territory back house by house. And we yep. simply don't. There, there is no political constituency for that. So I, I think that is that is the reality of where we are. We, we have the Western Empire is clearly coming up against a hard stop with its military capability. I think its ideational, its moral authority in the world is severely undermined by its support for Israel in relation to Gaza. And the economic environment is dramatically changing, bricks and so on. So, so we have a changing world order. 
Um, and and that's where we're at. So I guess the, the, the question now is that our Western elites who've been who've held on to this this militarism, are they going to give this up now um, and think about maybe altering course? And 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 it would be remiss of me not to obviously and we've discussed this before. You know, we also have the global governance issue. And this links in the COVID nineteen and so right. on. And there is a question, and it's a legitimate question as to how globalized that elite network is. You know, this idea we're moving into this technocratic, global dominated global governance structures with elites from multiple power blocks driving that. And I think there's an element of that going on. But also, there's an element, I think, of Western power projection using global governance, using the penetration that the West has of organizations such as the UN, World Health Organization, in order to try and project power. So the military projection of power not working while well, we have those structures. And I think that's a possibility which we need to keep our minds open to. I, I'm very sort of open to there being a number of possibilities about globalized versus more western centric centric nature of the covid-19 event and so on and what's going on there so um, uh, uh, are the globalists play, uh, above both if we want to have a you know different sides in this are above kind of that layer and uh, a sort of working working the program from both sides I would say that that's the big, that's the million dollar question in, in all of this. And I know that there are some strongly held opinions from people, analysts who, who are looking, who've been following these issues. You know, the, the, it's global versus this is more Western centric. I would say from this point of view of somebody, you know, from an empirical, what's the evidence? What have, who, Who's done the studies to show this? I, I, it's an open question for me at the moment. Um, I suspect that what we might also have is is that there's an overlap between these processes as well. So we right. have, um, I think you're, you're right to point out this question, is it above the kind of geopolitical structure or is it integrated with? And there are probably a number of elements going on there. And, and what we don't have is this really, I think it's this very clear picture at the moment of the driving force behind this, because I can see a lot of the driving force coming from the Western empire, but I can also see these kind of global structures, the role of China and COVID-19, for example, which points to this more globalized process. And then of course, you bring in the finance, international finance structure and so on. And, and that's the kind of complex picture we have. Um, maybe it's best just to visualize it in terms of we have shifting geopolitical uh, structures going on at the moment. We also have these global governance structures and how they're all fitting together and who's driving who and whether there's actually variation as, as we go through time, maybe there is agreement at some point, say on COVID-19, if we're going to see this as a, essentially a PSYOP. Um, but maybe that's broken down since then, because we've got a lot of, obviously, a lot of conflict going on in the international system. Um, so that's the unfortunately complex and uncertain mm. picture that we, you and I, and all, all of the people who we interact with are confronting at the moment. All these things are big threats to us. Yeah. Israeli action is a big threat to the Palestinians, clearly in a very immediate sense in terms of loss of life. But we have these broader threats, pandemic preparedness agenda, the censorship industrial complex, which we're fighting against. Um, and all of these things are very much elite driven by one or other elite groups, whether global or located in the West. And it's certainly not in the interests of the people, populations, the public and so on. Yeah, because if it was the Western Empire, let's call them that, led by the United States, then um, it's hard to to see that in ascendancy where it kind of looks like, like you say, they've hit the stops on on conflict, and they seem to have overplayed they United States, let's say, and Israel seem to have could have overplayed the hand here. Um, shooting for for whatever they're doing because you've got all this other um, um, all these other countries sort of ranging up against them. The numbers are huge there, and uh, I mean, were they shooting the gap, or is that just a fundamental? Um, um, I don't know, lack of perception um, in the in the in the wrong sort of thinking. What is that? Well, it's overplaying uh, on back on on this issue of the power projection and conflicts. It's overplaying the hand. I think. Uh, I, I think that you know, 
whatever it was the neocons were wanting back in the 1990s. If you listen to some of their conversations, you know, there was this kind of what seemed to be a completely naive sort of sense that, well, we will kick out Saddam and everyone will welcome us with flowers, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, they almost believed their own propaganda and and so on. And so in that sense, yes, overplaying, uh, embarking upon a strategy which was always going to end in in disaster um, in terms of, yeah, you know, and, and I see you see this in Syria, you know, when Russia intervened, you know, when Islamic extremists were marching on Damascus, you know, the Russian Federation said, that's enough. We're not going to see this government fall to these kinds of extremists. And they were, they were and are extremists and so on. So you have, you know, regime change war block there. You then have Ukraine, which, as you say, is now lost on the part of the US and, and so on. And and then you you have the kind of power projection that we're seeing at the moment. But all of these things are are not working anymore. Um and you know it's almost a, a case of reality bites at some point. You know, I guess it'll be for historians to work out sort of, you know, how irrational or irrational these kind of strategies of, of using military power were. Um, but where we are now is they're not working. They've caused huge loss of life around the world. At the moment, we see Western credibility just getting worse and worse and worse, especially in relation to Israel, Gaza. And yeah, the, the, the writing should be on the wall that we have to change course. There's dissent throughout the West. There's a lot of movement in political parties. You know, we see AfD in Germany becoming stronger. Mm. We see what we're yep. seeing in America with people like Kennedy and all of these sort of voices which are raising up, raising some pretty difficult questions, et cetera, about our current political structures and our establishments. You know, Trump as well, of course, has been talking about that. So, you know, we're at a point of a pretty significant dissensus for the West in, in a, at a point where how we used to do things is not possible anymore. And how we used to do things was, you know, <laughs> democracy at the end of the barrel of a gun or popped up enough dictatorships in our time. Um, and the world is changing. But where that world is going to, I mean, I am, you know, as much as I'm, you know, focused upon Western empire, I'm also very interested in in the COVID-19, the global governance. And, and, I, and I think, as I say, going back to this point, we're trying to conceptualize this in terms of us people versus elite groups, global elite groups, but also elite groups in, in, in the West and so on, is that, you know, my underlying sort of, that's what I think is most realistic at the moment, is that the kind of tools of control which are available to elites, and we see it in, you know, the digitized society, digital IDs, central bank digital currencies, all of those mechanisms getting us onto the digital grid potentially give a huge amount of power to governments and elites. And, you know, whether or not there's a kind of globally coordinated elite in regarding to COVID-19, I'm pretty sure that most governments in the world look at this technology and think, no, this is this is pretty useful to um, use. Yeah, we can do something with it. I'm sure the Chinese authorities are salivating over it, etc. And and I think that's the real, you know, we have a real threat with that. We battled Western imperialism and the violence that comes with that. But, you know, we are on the cusp of this or moving into, you know, this technocratic world, which is again just handing power to powerful groups and reducing our autonomy um, in pretty profound ways. And so maybe maybe the unfortunate truth, and this isn't a, a happy thing to be saying in a run up to Christmas, but you know, maybe the Western Empire in the way it has historically operated is coming to an end now. Right. We're seeing that playing out. Um, but we've also got these other processes which, you know, and as people such as Vanessa Beely point out rightly, sort of, well, okay, the reality for Western populations of digital currency and so on is not quite the same as what's happening to the Palestinians at the moment who are mm. suffering huge amounts of firepower being leveled at them and so on. But it's still a problem. And and I, I, I suspect that as, as we move from one bogeyman demon that we've been struggling against in terms of conflict, we're going to have this, a new one, come along so um we've got a, a, a yeah. long struggle ahead of us against um and i think we should think of it in terms of elites those in power those who have power over us whether wealth whether political um and you know we need to we need to push back against that and 
it is this is about democracy and it's about ethics and it's about people um and yeah i think we have a big struggle ahead of us an ongoing struggle as, as we go on in the coming years it's, it's just come to my mind that another legacy of of what came out of 9-11 has been the displacement of a huge amount of people you mentioned libya Okay, that's one example, but all out of North Africa and Middle Eastern countries that have, you know, been racked by war, there have been unprecedented numbers of refugees that have then entered Western countries. I'm thinking of Europe and even the United States now. And I'm wondering if you are up the top layer, and it really doesn't matter which side is doing what to who, as long as you're kind of manipulating it and and getting your power from it however that happens then then that is that's a lever you can use as well because if you look at the conflict in the middle east israel gaza that has created well even here in little old new zealand some quite vocal demonstrations on the street where people are quite polarized in their view you know they're the very staunch pro-israel very staunch pro-Palestinian, from the, um, you know, river to the sea or whatever, you know, that's being chanted. That's just here, but that's happening all around the world. And you've got those big populations, a lot of fighting age men is what I hear. I don't know. I'm not in those countries right now. But um, that seems to be a legacy of it. But it it seems to be quite a, a good fitting piece of the puzzle if you want to keep all sides sort of viable on the chessboard, you know? Yeah, I think, I mean, this kind of brings up this question of, of where the power centers lie. And, you know, there's a power center in the military industrial complex in the West, which we've been talking about extensively, but there are power centers in terms of the international financial structures, the Bank of International Settlements, and so on. And there are these elite groups. We have, you know, these foundations, these networks, they meet at Davos, and they don't tell us what they're talking about, etc. And for these elite, the people and these power centers, wherever they are, yes, the the one thing that works for them, and they are them, they are a group of effectively identifiable uh, people and so on and networks. You know, the more we are all struggling and fighting, (laughs) sort of, yeah, uh, and they're behind the walls watching us fighting and struggling, battling people, feeling they have to leave their place of birth because of the conflict or because there's no hope and opportunity, fueling tensions, and you, you see this in ten, racial tensions, etc. All of these things are beneficial to elites. Um, and I think, um, yeah, for sure, this is, okay, this is the dividing rule, isn't it? This is, you know, yeah. you... you you allow things to happen because actually it's ultimately ultimately going to shore up your your power and 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 this is this is the big challenge I think we all have that you know I have and you have and all of the people who do are aware that something is wrong about the world that we live in mm. and we need to do something is to find ways of of actually sort of creating a kind of common ground between populations and a common understanding of what we're up against and it's probably sort of a complex multi-faceted faceted power structure with um, various kind of sort of centers of power. Um, but understand it and, and start to try and conceptualize that and then work to push back against it um, and try to avoid playing into the hands of elite groups who, as you, I think, mean, absolutely correctly point out, they want us fighting. They want us, they want to create divisions between us over, say, Israel, um, Palestine. They want to create divisions on the streets of Europe by, um, you know, sort of having uh, policies which bring in large numbers of people, which then create tensions, etc. And, you know, I'm always somebody who's very, very I, I believe in multiculturalism and the idea of in mixing time, this is a good thing, but that's one thing. It's another thing having people who are desperately getting out of a war zone, and then, as you say, lots of young men coming out of a war zone, pouring into, and then of course it's always the working class areas who have to absorb this. It's not the comfortable middle class people who, and that's where you uh, get the very- scrapping and the and and the um, you know, the aggression, the facing off, and that's where you know you mix in a conflict like the one we've just been talking about that's going now, which which divides people up into into tribes and you, you can just see how that, you know, you just press the go button and then the stop button and then the go button again, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, and you can see how it works for them. And as in, you know, there, there is a cartoon which you see circulating on social media, isn't there? And it's it, it, the people sort of in the tower watching the population, the leader, yeah, the king. Like and, Hunger and Games. As long as, they're, as long as they're all just fighting out there, that they're not coming for you. And you know, I'm not that I'm suggesting violent revolution, obviously, but what I am suggesting is that, you know, we have very, very corrupt elites who are and elite power structures. And 9-11 is a powerful way for people to understand how corrupt those elites are, that, that they would allow this to happen and that crime to occur, in fact, be involved in it. Um, we see it with the Jeffrey Epstein saga. Um, you know, this was, as Whitney Webb argues, this is not just trafficking and sexual exploitation for elite groups, um, for purposes of their own indulgement, it is it's a also blackmailing blackmail machine. operation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's highly political, and yeah. so on. And if that isn't enough, and of course we've all seen the pictures of Epstein with a whole variety of very famous people and political people, and so on. If that isn't enough uh, to, to make people realize that there's something very, very wrong with the elite groups who are essentially overseeing our world, and then I don't know what is. But that should be enough. You know, we've got a very big problem. We've got a very pr big problem with these groups, and um, yeah, we're in a we're in a long term struggle. Which you know, um, I always like to think it will all be over by Christmas. It's <laughs> not far I, I away. Think, <laughs> I think that you and I are going to be, um, you know, for as long as we're sort of around, are going to be dealing with this. And I think younger generation, our children, uh, you know, younger people coming up, this is going to take a long time to. This is going to be a struggle, I think. Um, but, you know, it is a struggle we can win, right? We've, we've done well with COVID-19, I think, in the sense of, you know, people don't take the injections anymore. Um, there's big awareness about the World Health Organization, pandemic preparedness. There's very big awareness about Western imperialism now, globally. Yep. As I say, we're saying this is at a hard stop now. And this is all signs of we've, we're not powerless. We are never powerless in this. No, I think um, you can. You, I think you make a very good point. I think you can tell that because there does seem to be a, a huge sensitivity to any loss of 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 public uh, faith. I mean, look at vaccine hesitancy and how that was just laser focused on. I mean, you could probably go and hold down people and inject them if you want, but no, you had to have people agree to do it. So you had to minimize any hesitancy. So there seems to be a vulnerability at the elite level to you know sunshine being shined on things and and numbers of people to use that overused term waking up that does seem to be the antidote to this but it's the scale of it right is really what's important i, I imagine elite groups do not have power we're not sort of in this kind of world where they can do whatever they want they always have to manage people and, and of course this is where propaganda is important well, you buy people don't you you buy people you, you literally okay a lot of people are bought Okay, and it's very clear that if you look at higher up the power structure, elite groups, and I, in that I include, you know, academics, for example, and I'm from that that world, um, journalists. These are people who are co-opted, and they've got a good salary, a comfortable life, second home, nice holidays, etc. And you know, and things are pretty good, you know, because the chaos is over there, etc. Um, so you know, these people, you know, these people are protected um, from this, and they are bought. Um, some people just believe it all that they're, they're bought right. into the ideology because of propaganda yeah. but but you can't buy everybody um and i you know i think certainly for people who are sort of not at the top of this power structure and who recognize that it's unjust the people who are suffering because of the the nature of the power structure palestinians people in the conflict zones or us and as we've seen during covid-19 with our autonomy being brutally challenged with you know mandated injections in many contexts yes and so on i mean yep. that that's pretty much the ultimate right is 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 an authority being able to impose upon you an injection which you have to put into your own body i mean that's and i think they've overreached on that in yep. big time because pe people can realize how wrong that is and so you can't they can't carry through this these plans with all the population being on board. And in fact, most people will resist. And 
you know, there's another argument about, say, going back to this kind of idea of technocracy and control and the use of technology to control people is that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people out there who argue, well, they're overestimating that as well. If they think they can control the economy through central bank digital currency, et cetera, they're on a hiding to nothing with that. It will fail ultimately. So they don't even have the power that they think they have. Well, that's reassuring. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people are bought, but a lot of us are not bought. And I think, you know, people can, you know, people can believe in, you know, get back to values, ethics, truth telling, community, you know, what makes us as people, family, relationships, and so on. People know the difference between right and wrong is what I'm getting at here. Hmm. Um, and, and I do have a faith in basic human nature and people's ability to understand the difference between right and wrong, want to know the truth, want to live in a world where isn't which isn't filled with the kind of crime and injustice that we, we see at the moment. Um, and that's the power to harness across people and population. Yeah. And I think you're right. Yeah. Look, maybe, maybe we'll lose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we clearly that reinforces the point of of the fear of 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 that sort of mass opinion being that you know um, uh, that is that, us, yeah yeah that's Ultimate. the kryptonite that. <laughs> can be applied to them. Now I mentioned before, you know that there there are groups, sort of tribal groups protest groups facing off against each other in Western countries, leveraging off this conflict. Now, all those people, you know, I'm sure they're well motivated. And through the COVID experience, we saw that too. You know, we saw, uh, you know, freedom people gathering together um, against, you know, the tyranny types. And we've seen a few things happen here with our election where we noticed that those freedom groups, which you think might be homogenous, can actually start to fracture, twist, yeah. and fragment. And it's not as happy as we thought it was. I mean, is this happening big picture potentially in the world where we've got, you know, those are on the side of, you know, probably like us, on the side of freedom, but we will compartmentalize that and and form little factions within that, which really just takes the power of that movement, if you want to call it, you know, erodes it, corrodes it. Yeah, well, everything you describe, all of these things are in play, and and we do have these new divisions emerging. I, I, I'd caution against, as it were, I'm not saying you are, but people who are sort of panic about this. Oh no, we're losing the resistance. It's going to become divided. Is that you know, this is part, kind of part and parcel of you know, in the evolving um, and growing awareness of injustice and corrupt power structures and there's going to be some back and forth toing and throwing in that so you know we shouldn't get sort of over panicky about is this is this the end of this kind of you know awakening uh, and so on um at the same time in this and i'm working on this with a, a paper with vanessa beely just trying to sort of make the point a simple one but an important one that, that you know we have a problem with the military industrial complex in the western empire and we also have a problem with the technocratic global governance you know these are both uh, monsters demons that we're struggling against and so we you know and we can keep both of these in mind um, and make sure that we, we we sort of engage both. And, and I think that's a message which we need to try and inject into the broader resistance movement. Look, I, I do think, and I understand, you know, I know people in the resistance who are very supportive of Israel. I, I, I think there's a fundamental problem with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and it is to do with essentially um, the injustice being committed to the Palestinian population. It's very easy to see when you look at the maps and you look at even the UN map, the territory being lost. This is a drive driven through Zionism. And, and that's a fundamental problem. And there is a truth in there. And, and I think, you know, people are just going to have to come to terms with that in the resistance that there's, uh, you know, Israel has and Israeli actions are wrong. Um, that what's been done to the Palestinians is wrong, and that's an injustice which must be corrected. You know, not through you know through the destruction of etc., but there needs to be a, a political evolution of that situation, which allows all of those people in those areas to you know live in with proper full tolerance, equal rights, and so on, in in some kind of political uh, structure which allows that, um, because there is a fundamental injustice there, and that, that that's just going to 
you know, I think as with COVID-19, that the policies are wrong. That's people, that argument will be won as we've, you know, as it were, in a sense, won the argument on, say, lockdowns and injections, although our establishments haven't really, we're still trying to drag them kicking and screaming and so on. But this is why we're up against this big project. So I, th- I think that's going to sort itself out in, 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 in that way. And, and it is part of people, yeah, some people are going to have to basically admit that they got it wrong, as was the case with COVID-19. And so that, that's how I see a lot of the divisions we're seeing. But but I am trying to you know argue that we just, can't we be sensible here and recognize that there are probably two things going on here <laughs> and also recognize that we shouldn't be distracting from what's happening to the Palestinians because we're terrified about what the World Health Organization is doing because what's happening to the Palestinians is what is what are the numbers between ten and 20,000 killed? But, yeah, uh, it's, 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 it, but it's north of 15. It's I north think, of 10. Yeah. Not definitely 15. not ten. Yeah, yeah. Well, Fifteen you know, two, I think, as it was yesterday. Um, so it's important to do that. So that that's how I, I read all of that. Again, really interesting talking with you, Doctor Robinson. Thanks so much for beaming in um, from the other side of the world to chat with us again. And I'm I'm sure we can talk again. One last question: Knowing all that and knowing that um, a ceasefire vote was vetoed in the Security Council late last week, do we have any idea? how this Gaza-Israel conflict could turn out? No, I, 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 I forgot to bring my crystal ball along. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I, I think Israel, if it, it carrying on, I, I think this will further the isolation of the West internationally. Right. Um, I, I think if they escalate to war with Iran, then that's going to be another colossal strategic failure on the part of the West. Um, so I, I, I'm thinking that, well, I don't know. One path is that escalation. One path is this slow kind of awakening across the Western military industrial complex that the game's up. We can't fight. We haven't got the men and women to put into these wars. Um, the world is against us. We've lost, uh, you know, times have changed. Um, And I suppose at the moment, I'm suspecting that the hard reality is going to force Western elites and those who have been pushing these wars into that kind of recalculation. And I, if you want to make me to make a prediction, which is a really dumb thing to me. Okay, well, not a prediction, but I I, I think I think it's probably beginning to move to that kind of we've got to change course territory now. I don't think they're going to escalate um, to a bigger war with Iran or China and so on. And if they do, well... We'll have to be out on the streets again. Yeah, yeah. All right, Dr. Piers Robinson, thanks for coming on our Reality Check radio station once again, and I look forward to chatting again sometime. Thanks so much. Good to talk to you, Paul. Thanks. Rational discussion, common sense, open debate. RCR, Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan. Just a reminder that we have quite a large number of interviews on the topic of Israel-Palestine and various sides of the story. So people can visit our website or app to check those out. It's all about getting as many sides of the story as possible, so you can work it out for yourselves, best that you can anyway. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Loving what you're hearing? Well, the establishment hates it. And right now they're conjuring up new ways to try and censor RCR. To ensure you never miss a beat of the hard-hitting news you've come to know and love, make sure you're on the RCR mailing list. Get connected now at realitycheck.radio forward slash email.